Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the October 7th, 2022 episode of Unchained. In case you didn't know, every episode of Unchained is also available on YouTube. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast to subscribe. One Inch is a top DEX aggregator that finds the best rates across multiple networks. Why use a single DEX when you can use them all? Get One Inch on your phone now or swap on oneinch.io. With the crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code Laura. Link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Today's guest is Kristen Smith, Executive Director of the Blockchain Association. Welcome, Kristen. It's great to be here, Laura. The last several months in crypto have been pretty dramatic. There's been an epic number of collapses. There's also been some Mm -hmm. unprecedented enforcement actions. And we'll start talking about one of them, uh, Tornado Cash. From your conversations in Washington, do you think, as many people in the crypto industry believe, that regulators didn't understand the repercussions of what they were doing when they sanctioned a series of smart contracts? Or as some people might say, do you think that they just plain messed up? I, you know, that's an interesting question. I I think that there are a handful of people with an OFAC that understood what was going on. But I think that this was a decision that was really driven by other actors in Washington, namely like the State Department and Maine Treasury that wanted to do something about North Korea. And this seemed like a logical thing. So I don't think it was a question of, hey, we have this, um, you know, sort of complex policy that we want to create. How can we go about doing that with an, an you know, with some sort of sanctions. I I really think it was a broader sort of national security issue. However, it has um, obviously tapped into something that, um, you know, is, is we think, you know, pretty problematic, um, uh, what they've done and um, is going to require quite a bit of work to undo it. Oh, and when you say undo, like, what exactly does that mean? Well, I mean, I don't know if it can be undone, but I think, you know, with with Coinbase, um, you know, sort of challenging um, the action, I think that that is a really important step. And it's great to see, uh, again, they're not actually bringing the challenge, but they're funding it. Um, The fact that they're backing that, I think, is is really important. Um, You know, at the Blockchain Association, we have a general license request in with OFAC so that lawful users of Tornado Cash can you know, if granted, uh, go in and, 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 and get their tokens back. But, you know, it, it's just it's just a, a lot of work to work through the administrative options that are available. Um, and then obviously the, the court option as well. Essentially, like parts of this can be undone, but maybe this idea of the notion that you could sanction a series of smart contracts will not be 
reversed? Yeah, well, we'll have to see. I mean, we'll have to see how the litigation goes, right? I mean, I think that's that's the challenge that we're at. Um, I do think that we need to be having a broader conversation around financial privacy in Washington. And that is something that I think Congress will want to get involved with at some point. But the challenge is when you have, you know, sort of these national security arguments coming in where they're worried about North Korea and North Korea is a big enemy, it becomes a lot, a lot harder to have um, sort of a, a, a dispassionate discussion about it. And so, um, so yeah, this is, this is something I think we're going to be dealing with the, the consequences of for, for a while. Um, and yeah, we'll certainly, you know, do everything we, we can um, uh, to, to support the, the litigation effort. You know, we will be filing an amicus brief um, on that front, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a real unfortunate turn of events. I just obviously this week with the news about North Korea launching some missile over Japan or something <laughs> like clearly, um, clearly there is cause for concern. So, um, yeah, I guess we'll have to see how all this plays out because obviously in this scenario, it does seem that in a way the crypto industry has been sort of like collateral damage. Um, one question I had for you is you've probably seen that there's some consternation now in the Ethereum community over how one of the relays under proof of stake flashbots is complying with sanctions at the base layer. And about 40% of the blocks now are being validated using the flashbots relays. So that's kind of a huge percentage of blocks that are being censored. Do you get the sense that the government wants compliance to um, go that deep, meaning that it needs to be enforced at the base layer? Yeah, no, I think there are some in government that do want to see it go that deep, right? Um, and um, I think it's a conversation that is is emerging. It's not one that's been, you know, sort of fully, fully vetted yet. But but yeah, I think that, um, you know, when you're dealing with, with sanctions, when you're dealing with anti-money laundering efforts, like like the, the people who are working on those take that responsibility incredibly seriously. And, and you know, to the extent that those can be, you know, built in. I think I think they would like to see that now. Whether or not that should be the case, I think is is, is more of a policy question. But but yeah, I certainly think there are those within government that that want to see it go as deep as possible. And so Treasury has now issued some guidance on how to get your coins out of Tornado Cash. But why have they not issued kind of details around how far the compliance needs to go? Like you know um, whether these base layer participants need to enforce <clears throat> them. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I think a lot of that has paused with the the lawsuit that has been filed. I think that on on one hand, I think it's great to see that that is moving and you know uh, that it's being challenged, but it does make it more difficult to have a dialogue with them when there is active litigation going on. And so, you know, I do think some additional guidance um, and some additional frequently asked questions would be very helpful. I'm just not optimistic that we're going to get that now that the litigation is out there. All right. So now let's turn to UkiDAO, which was another case where the industry had that sort of similar reaction where they sort of felt like that what the government had done suing this DAO didn't make sense since it wasn't a centralized entity. And I wondered, do you think that the CFTC did that because they wanted to make this point that decentralization is not a defense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the facts of this case aren't aren't great, right? Because if you take B0X, the sort of centralized entity, um, you know, if, if you were 
trading leveraged products or allowing retail customers to trade leverage leverage derivatives products in the US like you have to register right like that is um uh and and also just re- leverage retail commodities I should say um you have to register with the CFTC like that is that is very clear under the law and so what i think ukidao you know was sort of touted as a way to get around that requirement and so i think that that made this a, a particularly like strong target for the CFTC um obviously it poses ma- massive questions though right because you have individual governance token holders who are um uh you know who are now liable for the actions of the dow where there was you know n- i don't think that's anybody who um you know engaged in voting and in governance like thought that that was going to be the case and so um you know it's going to be interesting to see how this one plays out um you know in in i guess defense of the CFTC they don't really have a lot of tools to go about doing this right like this this regulation by enforcement is really the biggest tool that they have and so I, I think this is going to be a very important case, but but what we do need, though, is to come up with some sort of solution to provide le- limited liability to DAOs and some sort of legal status. And so, um, it's unfortunate that that this is all being done again through sort of this enforcement action. Um, but I do think there will be litigation around it. I think there's a couple different organizations that are that have um, you know stepped up and said that they're willing to help fund this and fight this. Um, and so, I think it's going to be a very a very interesting question but yeah this this was certainly the most aggressive move we've we've seen um in terms of regulation by enforcement from the CFTC we're very used to ha- seeing this come out of the SEC but <laughs> i think everybody was was really caught off guard with the CFTC but but i think it goes to like sort of this broader point that i want to make is that you know if there was really clear guidance that agencies could give already whether it be the CFTC or OFAC or FinCEN or others, like they've done that already, right? Like that guidance is out the door. What we're seeing now is agencies are sort of testing and playing around the limits of the authority that they have. And so whether it be with Tornado Cash or with UkiDAO or even with some of the cases over at the SEC, the Grayscale lawsuit or or Ripple, we're starting to fight these battles out in, in the courtroom. It's really not the ideal place to be doing this. Like in theory, you'd rather have a more sort of organized open process. But I think it's really great that the community is pushing back um, and is willing to fund the litigation to to challenge when we when we think agencies step too far, because it's it's our right to do that. And and I think it's it's great to see companies in particular that are stepping up to to fund these efforts. But what we really need is legislation. That would be that would be the real way to get things done. Um, and, we, and we may see some progress on that this year as well. Yeah. So in a moment, we are going to talk a little bit more about potential for legislation, but also about the SEC. Um, but first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. To swap crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on OneInch, a top DEX aggregator built to get you better rates than any single DEX. Enjoy unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Get OneInch on your phone now or swap on OneInch.io. Back to my conversation with Kristen. 
So the SEC made a splash this week, especially in the mainstream media, with a settlement against Kim Kardashian for promoting what the SEC said was a crypto security without um, giving proper disclosures. And you've probably seen people in the crypto industry have been criticizing the settlement, saying that it was really more of a publicity stunt, whereas the SEC sort of missed major uh, things that have brought harm to everyday consumers like Celsius and you know, some of these other like recent collapses that we've seen. And so I was curious for your opinion, why do you think the SEC um, pursued the settlement with Kim Kardashian, but, you know, didn't really do much about Celsius? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that the Kim Kardashian situation was, was obviously a press play, right? I mean, that was something that was picked up across news outlets, across, um, uh, you know, mainstream news, um, big on social media. I mean, th- I mean, that was uh, obviously like, I think, a, a publicity stunt. I mean, Gary Gensler was on Squawk Box within minutes of, of, uh, of the announcement of, of the action. But yeah, this, this leads to this troubling trend, right? It's, it's, so basically what they're saying, you know, is Ethereum Max is a security. It's like, okay, well, at least they're alleging that, right? And now that we have this settlement, we don't know if, court would agree with the fact that Ethereum Max is a security or not, right? And so um, I think that this this continues to kind of put more uncertainty out there. Um, and this isn't, you know, the right way to make policy. I think if if we had clarity on what was a security or not, then I think the advertising team that works with Kim Kardashian probably would have complied with the laws, right? And said, you know, not only like hashtag ad, but all the disclosures that are required for her, for her to do something like that. Or maybe she just wouldn't have touted it at all. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, if it is indeed a security, then yes, she was clearly like in, in violation of, of the anti-touting provisions because she didn't have the proper disclosure. But the bigger problem is this settlement doesn't give us any sense as to whether or not it is a security and and what the legal reasoning behind that is. So, you know, it just puts more uncertainty out into the marketplace. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Gary Gensler had a video. He was on Squawk. He was, this was clearly a publicity stunt. As we were just discussing, there has been this huge question over the last several years over which tokens are securities and which are commodities. And there are a number of bills that have been introduced in Congress that attempt to answer this question. I think most of them propose the CFTC will be the default regulator. But I was curious, like, which of these bills do you see as having the greatest chance of making it into law and why? Yeah, no. So this this is what we're spending most of our time on right now at the Blockchain Association. Um, there, there have been several bills. Uh, all of which uh, point to the CFTC to be the regulator for uh, digital commodity spot markets. The one that's getting the most traction right now is the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act, the DCCPA. And this is legislation that was introduced by the chair and ranking member of the Senate Agriculture Committee. There was a hearing in September on this legislation. And I think there is a very good chance that this is enacted into law before the end of the year. Um, there, there are some issues with the bill that we're working through uh, right now that, um, you know, I would we would definitely want to see fixed prior to anything becoming uh, being signed into law. But I think that um, we expect this bill to go to markup and committee right after the election in, in the middle of November. And the um, leadership offices have 
um, thought about potentially attaching this bill to either the National Defense Authorization Act or the omnibus or whatever sort of year-end packages are going. And so the timeline has um, has greatly sped up for for this legislation getting done. And and what this legislation would do is it defines you know digital commodity platforms and um, and digital commodity trading facilities, brokers, dealers, custodians, and requires these entities to register with the CFTC. And, and with registering, they you would have you know sort of all of the um, sort of anti-abusive trading practices, disclosures of conflicts. Um, you'd have the you know cybersecurity programs, like all, all of the things that you would want to have for regulation. Um, I think that the big issue that's outstanding there right now is that. Um, DeFi kind of gets wrapped up in this regulation. And so we've been working to try to figure out some sort of process around how to apply some of the core principles in the regulation to different actors in the DeFi ecosystem in a, in a way that makes sense. And so that, that's kind of where the discussions land right now. But but yeah, there, this, there is a very real possibility that this gets signed into law by the end of the year. And, and so this is this is what we're spending most of our time on right now. Wow, I'm just uh, a little floored actually that you're saying this. I, I <laughs> guess I hadn't heard it before. I don't know if that had been known before, but I feel like what I'd been hearing for a long time was that stablecoin legislation was the kind of crypto legislation that would be likely to be passed first. So, what's the status on that? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, no, things have been moving incredibly quickly this fall in Washington, and, and think if we had had this conversation two months ago, I, I would have had the exact opposite. Um, the stablecoin legislation, um, this is an effort that uh, Chairwoman Waters and uh, Patrick McHenry, uh, who's a ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, as well as the Treasury Department, have been engaged in discussions for months now. Um, there have been a lot of hearings on stablecoins. And what we're hearing right now is that those talks have essentially sort of stalled um, and that we don't anticipate that becoming law. Um, you can talk to different people, they might give you different opinions, but but yeah, our latest information is that that's probably something that's going to be picked up again in 2023. Uh, that being said, I do think there is a window if the Digital Commodity Consumer Protection Act gets attached, it may, it may make sense to do something on stable coins at the same time. I think from our perspective at the Blockchain Association, the language of the stable coin bill that at least our understanding of how it's written it is actually pretty good. I think it provides a, a really good framework for, you know, dollar-backed stablecoins and, and their regulation. Um, there had been an issue around decentralized stablecoins, but we largely um, have that in a place that's, that's workable going forward. So yeah, much less optimistic on stablecoin this year. But again, that could change if, if the DCCPA does continue to, to gain momentum and get attached, I, I could see the conversations, you know, reopening. I, I would say in general, you know, the end of a Congress, like this lame duck session is an incredibly special time for Congress. Like this is when, this is when the, the deals happen, right? Because you have this time pressure of the Congress is ending. You've got, you know, the election is over. You've got people that are going to be cycling out. Um, and, you know, everything kicks off anew in 2023. And so, with that sort of deadline, that time pressure, people are able to make deals. And I think this is one of those issues, you know, crypto policy in general, that would be a pretty big bipartisan win 
um, especially with all the market events that we've had this year, you know, Congress would be able to say, hey, there were these issues and now we did something to address it. Even if like the, the even if it's a little bit like apples and oranges, like, you know, the high level messaging is that, you know, we brought regulation to crypto. And, and I think it's something that they really want to get done. Um, but yeah, there's certainly some issues that are outstanding with the bill. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, on the fence if this is a good plan or a bad plan, but the reality is this is this is the this is where we're at. And so we're working right now to try to make as many improvements as, uh, you know, with the committee staff as possible um, uh, so that when the next draft is released, it'll hopefully be better than the one that was introduced. And when you say that there are still, still some questions about DeFi, what are those questions? Well, the question is, um, right now, it's not clear that the regulation for DeFi would be any different than for CeFi, right? And and if you have just sort of one regulatory regime for those two worlds, right? For the centralized, if, if, if decentralized exchanges need to comply with the same regulations as centralized exchanges, then there is going to be elements of those it will be impossible to comply, right? Because it is decentralized. And so we have to figure out like what are what are the appropriate core principles that should apply to DeFi that you know, might be different than you would have in a centralized context. The I think in an ideal world, we would be doing what Europe is doing, right? Where they they did Mika, and then they're coming back and doing DeFi later. Uh, this this committee, this the Senate Agriculture Committee, uh, does not want to save DeFi for later, but they but they have been open to making sure we find the right process so that any regulation of different actors in this community. Is, is tailored and, and appropriate, right? Um, I mean, like what we saw with, with UkiDAO is if, if you're a governance token holder, you know, you're supposed to be registered with the CFTC as an individual and you're supposed to have like a BSA plan. Like, like that doesn't make sense, right? And so we need to make sure that the CFTC, if a law is passed, is given the flexibility to say, all right, this applies, this doesn't apply and, and to study it first, right? Like there hasn't been a single federal study on DeFi there hasn't been a single congressional hearing on DeFi. The CFTC hasn't held any meetings or, or roundtables on DeFi. And so we don't want to rush super quickly to regulate this space when nobody's actually thought about what the problems are, what the risks are, and, and what the best solutions could be. So, so yeah, we want to make sure we get, we get that fixed um, and, and we're actively um, working to try to do that. There's some other problems, I think, with the bill too. It's, it's sort of a missed opportunity to answer this securities clarity question that we were talking about earlier, you know, that might be a battle we have to save for another day. Oh, oh, I thought though, if it were going to make the CFTC the default, default regulator, then that sort of settles or largely settles it, but you're saying it doesn't? No. Well, the way, the way the definition is, is defined right now, um, it does call out Bitcoin and Ethereum or Ether, I should say as being included in the definition of digital commodity. And so that would pretty clearly put those two at the CFTC. But for everything else, there would still be sort of this open question. And their their securities are, are sort of carved out of the definition of digital commodity. So Gary Gensler could still assert that something is a security. Uh, and then therefore, it would need to you know be regulated by the SEC. So yeah, this this does not solve really what is like the core question of this industry. But I do think it, it does help in that right now, the question of whether something is a security or a commodity has very high stakes, because if it is a security, 
has to be registered at the SEC and there's all these disclosures, et cetera, right? Lots of regulations. It's a commodity. There's no market regulation, no disclosures of any kind. And so I think by having a strong role for the CFTC, then, you know, the question of is it a security or not is a little bit less high stakes. It's more what is the type of, you know, regulation that we need? What is the type of information that investors need um, in order to uh, make informed decisions? And, and you know, I think I think that conversation gets a little bit easier to have um, if, if the CFTC has a strong role to play. All right. Well, we managed to cover a lot of meaty topics in a very short period of time. So I really, really appreciate that you uh, took the time to hang out with us. Yeah, no, great. Great to be here, Laura. Yeah, we'll have to come back and we can go, we could do a whole show on any one of these questions. So, Oh my God, seriously. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on Unchained. All right. Thanks. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Thanks for tuning in to this week's News Recap. Ukidao's Serving Sparks Controversy Apart from the topics we discussed with Kristen, there were other developments around Ukidao this week. A federal court ruled that it was legal for the CFTC to serve Ukidao through a website HelpBot. However, the crypto group DeFi Education Fund argued that the CFTC should properly serve Ukidao's actual members, not just the DAO at large. Additional, the LexPunk Army, a community of Web3 lawyers and developers, filed a motion for amicus status in the case. They wrote, If our motion is granted, our amicus brief will aim to educate the court on DAO's purposes, nature of coordination mechanisms, and to help craft fairer methods of serving legal notice to DAO participants. Doquan's passport could be invalidated. On Wednesday night, the South Korean government gave Terra founder Do Kwon notice that his passport was in danger of being voided, according to a notice published on the government website. The South Korean Ministry of Foreign Affairs announced that Kwon will have 14 days to return his passport before it is canceled. The notice also warned that if he refuses to give it back, he likely would not be able to obtain another passport, which would make it very hard for him to leave the country or, since he isn't currently there, travel. Additionally, the Korean founder denied a media report from a Korean news outlet, News One, that prosecutors have frozen almost $40 million worth of his crypto assets. Juan wrote on Twitter, I don't know whose funds they've frozen, but good for them. Hope they use it for good. He also insinuated that his case is being used for political gain. In accordance with a Terraform Lab spokesperson who said the case was highly politicized, Juan said, it's no surprise that crypto is most popular in countries that weaponize state institutions against their own people for political gain. In a Twitter exchange I had with Kwan, he shared insights on some hot topics. He said he knows the legal risks of his tweets, and he also stated that the reason he hasn't returned to Korea yet doesn't necessarily have to do with the fact that the charges are violations of the Capital Markets Act, as Zach Guzman had implied on a recent episode of Unchained. 
When I asked him why he hadn't returned to Korea, Kwan suggested he would provide an answer in an interview for an upcoming episode of Unchained. Meanwhile, Korean prosecutors made the first arrest in the Terra case, though a court immediately dismissed it. According to a report from Korean news outlet JTBC, the Seoul Southern District Prosecutor's Office arrested a person with the surname Yu, the first name was not revealed, head of general business operations at Terraform Labs, for allegedly violating Korea's Capital Markets Act. The office also requested a bench warrant for Yu, which would give prosecutors the ability to keep Yu detained during trial. However, hours after the arrest, it was reported that a South Korean court dismissed the arrest warrant for Yu. At this time, a week after South Korea said Interpol issued a red notice for Kwan, and despite his active arrest warrant, his whereabouts are still unknown. Celsius executives withdrew $17 million before the collapse. Former Celsius CEO Alex Mashinsky and former Chief Strategy Officer Daniel Leon withdrew $17 million in crypto assets from the company weeks before it froze client withdrawals and declared bankruptcy. The Financial Times had previously reported Mashinsky's withdrawal of $10 million. This week, Leon announced he would step down as CSO only a week after Mashinsky's resignation. Amid its bankruptcy proceedings, Celsius has set a timeline for the auction of its assets, according to a court filing. The company will have a final bid deadline of October 17th, with an auction on the 20th. Sam Bankman-Fried is reportedly considering bidding for Celsius's assets, following FTX's acquisition of Voyager's assets last month. Additionally, Martin Glenn, the judge overseeing the bankruptcy case, appointed an independent examiner to produce a report on the company's financials. Meanwhile, Celsius Mining claimed that hosting provider Core Scientific violated bankruptcy terms because it allegedly failed to deploy mining machines on time and try to pass on power charges against their agreement. Elon Musk to buy Twitter again. <laughs> According to recent filings, Elon Musk, the richest person on earth, has offered to move forward with the deal to buy Twitter for $44 billion, the originally agreed-upon price. Twitter is where everything happens in crypto, so a change in the social media giant's ownership could have implications for the industry. In fact, text messages between Musk and Twitter founder Jack Dorsey revealed that Musk is interested in building a blockchain-based social media platform in which users would have to pay to register messages on the chain. According to Musk, this would cut out the majority of spam and bots. Ether gets a blue-chip institutional vehicle. Fidelity Investments, one of the world's largest asset managers with $4.5 trillion in assets under management, launched the Ethereum Index Fund to give its clients exposure to Ether. Since its first sale last month, the fund has already raised $5 million, according to a filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Fidelity already had a fund offering with exposure to Bitcoin. A Fidelity spokesperson told Coindesk, as the marketplace for digital assets grows, Fidelity recognizes the need for a diverse set of products. We have continued to see client demand for exposure to digital assets beyond Bitcoin. Fidelity has been showing an increasing interest in crypto lately. Last month, news broke that the investment giant was planning to offer BTC trading to millions of retail customers on its platform, though that news has not yet been confirmed. Also, the company announced a partnership with Citadel Securities, Charles Schwab, and others to launch a crypto exchange called EDX Markets. Meanwhile, as traditional finance gets deeper into crypto, early DeFi protocol MakerDAO has decided to invest $500 million into treasuries and bonds. The goal is to diversify MakerDAO's balance sheet and generate more revenue, according to a statement issued by the DAO. 
Tornado Cash developer Alexei Pritsev to remain in jail. Arrested Tornado Cash developer Alexei Pritsev will have to stay in jail after his appeal was rejected by a judge in the Netherlands. Pritsev was arrested two days after the U.S. Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control sanctioned crypto mixing service Tornado Cash. He was arrested for allegedly facilitating money laundering through the platform. As per the judge, Pritsev will have to remain in custody for at least six more weeks. Ksenia Malik, Pritsev's wife, told the blog that the ruling was absolutely not fair and that there is absolute lawlessness going on here. She went on to say that Dutch authorities are afraid that Alex will return to Russia, although if he returns there, he will be sent to war. Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Is crypto a threat or not? The Financial Stability Oversight Council, chaired by Treasury Secretary Jenny Ellen, claimed crypto could threaten the stability of the financial system. In a report issued in response to President Biden's executive order to investigate crypto assets, a risk panel wrote, The financial stability risks of crypto assets would be substantial if those vulnerabilities were to remain in place while the scale of crypto asset activities and interconnectedness with the traditional financial system were to grow rapidly. Yellen added, innovation without adequate regulation can result in significant disruptions and harm to the financial system and to individuals. The report seems to contradict Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell, who said last month that DeFi doesn't pose risks to financial stability. This week, crypto analytics company Elliptic released a report stating that crypto has been used to launder $4 billion since 2020. Furthermore, TRM Labs reported that pro-Russia paramilitary groups have raised $400,000 in crypto. Solana goes offline. The Solana blockchain suffered yet another outage last weekend that left the network inoperative for several hours due to a node misconfiguration. The culprit was a rare consensus bug, explained Joe McCann, founder of crypto fund Asymmetric. As validators couldn't reach a consensus on the state of the network, the Solana team decided to stop transactions to fix the issue. According to the Solana status website, the outage lasted 6 hours and 19 minutes, but there were some who claimed that the server was down for a longer period of time. Anatoly Yakovenko, founder of Solana, tweeted, It's a sad state for the industry when even on days that Skulami is down, it's still handling more transactions from dApps than all the EVM chains and their rollups and L2s combined. This is the third time that the Solana blockchain has gone offline this year, and this outage comes one year after the 18-hour outage suffered in September 2021. Speaking of outages, on Sunday, crypto exchange Coinbase, famous for creating an easy on- and off-ramp into the fiat system, was temporarily unable to process payments and withdrawals from U.S.-based banks due to an issue with the ACH system. Time for fun bits. Can't steal Mr. Beast's BTC. Popular YouTuber Jimmy Donaldson, also known as Mr. Beast, is not the best at crypto security, but he got very lucky. In an interview on the Andrew Schultz podcast, Mr. Beast told a story about how he almost lost $2 million in Bitcoin when someone broke into his house and stole his laptop, which had a post-it note on it that said, Bitcoin private keys, (laughs) along with the actual keys. However, the criminal did not seem to notice and didn't steal the crypto of the YouTuber who managed to transfer these Bitcoins to a new wallet and called the robber a fucking moron. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Kristen, the Blockchain Association, and all these crypto regulatory issues, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, 
With help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Urbanovich, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.